Okay. Flip open with me to Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. 808 on the Black Bible, or in the Black Bible around you. We're going to read a setup to this verse, but really the last verse is where we're going to camp out. Matthew three thirteen. Then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan, uh, uh, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, "I need to be baptized by you. Do you come to me?" But Jesus answered him, "Let it be so now, for thus is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness." Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately. He went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's pray. Father God, Um, as many of us have probably gotten a buzz from our phones telling us how much screen time we've experienced this week just in the last few minutes. Lord, we are reminded that we live in a distracted world that is finding more and more creative ways to addict us to being distracted, being filled, but yet always feeling empty. And Lord, I pray that you might present to us today an invitation to step into rather a filling that feels empty, an emptiness that feels filling, found in slowing down, in stopping, and in sitting silently, alone in your presence, alone in the presence of ourselves. High, high ambitious goals for us in this moment, in this time. Like all invitations, it's an exciting one, but comes with a significant amount of risk. So we want to recognize that. And we want to, Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for those here, not be detoured by the risk by the fear, but rather press into the desire, press into what's underneath the fear, press into you. So give us a vision for that, Lord, in these next two weeks. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. A highly uh, discredited source, I realize, in this day and age, but an extended quote to start out from Louis C.K., he, uh, Louis C.K., we realize just as a comedian in general, obviously comedians are often able to say truths behind laughter, which obviously became harrowing when we realized that many of the things Louis C.K. was joking about in sexual ways were very, very real in his life. But a few years ago, he was on Conan O'Brien, and he talked about why he would not give his children cell phones. And amongst other things, this is a big part of what he said. 
you need to build up the ability to just be yourself and not be doing something. That's what phones are taking away. It's the ability to just sit there. That's being a person. Because underneath everything in your life, there is that thing, that empty, that forever empty. And sometimes when we clear away, or when things clear away, and you're not watching anything, you're in your car, you're just, uh, you start going, oh no, here it comes, I'm alone. It starts to visit on you. Just the sadness. Life is tremendously sad, just being in it. That's why we text and drive. I look around and pretty much 100% of people are driving, are driving or texting, and they're killing everybody, murdering each other with their cars. People are willing to risk taking a life and ruining their own because they don't want to be alone for a second because it's too hard. And he goes on to tell a story about himself sitting in his car and listening to a Bruce Springsteen song, and all of a sudden he said, oh no, I'm getting sad. I've got to get my phone and write hi to like 50 people. And then I said, you know what? Don't. Just be sad. Just let the sadness stand, uh, just let the sadness be. Stand in the way of it and let it hit you like a truck. And I let it come, and I just started to feel, oh my God. And I pulled over, and I cried. I cried so much, and it was beautiful. Sadness is poetic. You're lucky to live sad moments. And then I had happy feelings, because when you let yourself feel sad, your body has antibodies and has happiness that comes rushing in to meet the sadness. So I was grateful to feel sad. And then I met it with true, profound happiness. It was such a trip. The thing is, because we don't want to be the first, uh, we don't want to do that first bit of sad, we push away with a little phone or a porn addiction or food, and you never feel complete sad or complete happy. You just kind of feel satisfied with your product, and then you die. So that's why I don't want to give phones to my kids. Through those words, I think... Louis is hitting on a concept that is extremely biblical, repeated over and over and over again in the scriptures as a direct invitation to all of us. In fact, I think it stands as a prophetic moment to our culture right now. An invitation from God. And I realize when I start talking about invitation from God, a lot of us start thinking through like, okay, well, God invites us to be in a relationship with him. And so that's for the non-Christians in the room. And it very much so is. If you're here and you're not a Christian, very much so, we want to extend before you regularly, weekly, an invitation to be in the presence and to know God. To be invited to him, not because of what you do, but because how he has sacrificed and how he has made a way to be in presence, in his presence, fully accepted as a child not based on your own merit. But if you're a Christian in the room, you start turning out like, okay, well, that invitation, I've accepted that already. I've been in God's, or I, I've been invited into God's family. I, I have been uh, accepting of the gospel. I've been baptized into a community of believers, into his presence. But yet, I would say we often neglect the further invitation to fully enter in to his presence and that alone, into what Louis C.K. describes as the forever empty, because that's often where he waits to meet us. See, we've been talking in this series, uh, a mini-series on the Sabbath way of life, and the first couple weeks we were talking all Sabbath, and we just talked about the beauty of this gift that God gives us to just pretend no longer that we are God or that we are slaves to work, and it allows us to cease from our work for a day, one-seventh all our productivity, and, and just trust that God is one who's providing for us before we ever are, and to trust that he is ultimately 
what is good in this world. So we get in his presence, we experience him, but we also experience all the delight of the world that he's made. And we enjoy what he has created and called good for one day, if not in, I mean, it should be a part of all days, but just extendedly for one. And, and we remember our salvation. We remember that God is the one who has saved us, not by our own work, but by his. So ceasing and resting is, again, just even saying that you are ultimately the author and the finisher of everything, including our life, our, our, our pursuit of you. And for some of us, that's really hard. And it's because our rhythms of our life, just our demands of work, just the expectations from our, our superiors, everything that's going on in your life, maybe even just that, that gnawing feeling of I don't want to slow down just continues to, to eat at you. And so it takes a while to get into. It takes a while to practice and to eventually even perfect just all the rhythms that we talked about last week to do it well. But then eventually you, you do slow and there starts to be some, some traction with it and some joy in it. And then for others of us, it's just like, it's a natural invitation. Maybe you're more wired and geared to just, you know, being in slow down and being present. And maybe, if anything, you, if you admit it, you're a little bit more prone to laziness than overwork. And, and so it's just like the sense of, like, I can do that. I can do rest. I can do that really well. And, yes, there's the other side of, like, okay, rest without work is laziness, and work without rest is slavery. But, but still, you, you do that well. And so there's this joyfulness about Sabbath. There's this been invitation about Sabbath. I've, I've processed with a number of you that even for the first time are just like putting a Sabbath into your life. And you're like, hey, this is awesome that God gives us this gift. and That it's actually required of us. But then it's not always easy. At least not in every season Sabbath isn't. Even if you go through a period of hard and then easy, it can easily move back into a time where it where you start to slow down the pace of your life and things start to emerge. And it starts revealing the forever empty. And again, that's, it's not an indictment on your soul. It's, it's not a bad thing. It's not a flaw in your design. It's an invitation. One that God has put there and is waiting for you to take him up on. I've actually experienced this the last, in just an intense way, the last seven months. I've been doing Sabbath for a long time, and it was just something that, I don't know, I just became a Christian in college, and so even before I stepped into the work world, I was even trying to practice it in college a little bit, which was really kind of superfluous, but either way, um, I still was just like doing this with friends, taking a day to rest and, and to be with um, be with friends and be just present to God and, and enjoy. And, and then, so my wife and I, we step into our vocation and we just put it in as a big rock and it just never leaves. And, and we just always have had this in our rhythm. But the last, last seven months, all of a sudden, all of the rhythms that I do for delight in God's creation, all of the things I do to recreate my soul, it feels like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon and taking a fistful of gravel and dirt and tossing it in and seeing it blow away. It's just nothing is getting any traction into all of a sudden a bottomless pit. And so I try to put more in and more, and more experience and more joy and more delight. And then I realize another thing. All the rhythms I had done to put in just to pray and delight in God, I find myself rushing through them as quickly as I can. And... And then I take uh, each, each month 
the pastors at our church have prioritized just one work day a month where we close down shop and we just try to be in the presence of God. We call it a renewal day. Um, it's often, and this day was very much so, not the easiest but the hardest day of our month. And I, get, I sit down for a renewal day in the fall and I try to start getting into all the things I know that just stir up my affections for God, all the things that I can figure out to like, okay, this is what's really going to get me going. This is what's going to get me in his presence. This is what's going to allow me to connect into him in silence. A n- horrific and painful disconnect. I went home a half day and I just started sobbing my eyes out because all of a sudden I'm like, okay, I'm here. I'm doing it. I'm, I'm doing everything I can. I'm a pastor and I cannot feel God. And, and so I, I continue to press in that season. Then I start to notice all these things in my heart, like all these ways that I, you know, we're sitting here teaching this series the fall about, about spiritual formation and sanctification and growth. And I start noticing all these resistances in my own heart to do all these things that I'm trying to put before myself. And that I, I, I always just thought when I became a Christian, man, God's going to start growing me into these things. And then all of a sudden being like really worried about like, man, I, I just don't see him doing any of it. I don't see any traction in my heart. Uh, just all the things about loving, even like those closest to me, my, my wife and my kids, I just feel a, a deep amount of selfishness. I, I start feeling what I've heard one pastor call as a reverse Forrest Gump moment. If you know the movie, Forrest Gump, played by Tom Hanks, brilliant, by the way. If you haven't, go, just watch that. That's Sabbath uh, for you. (laughs) Assignments. Um, But either way, there's a moment where Forrest is questioned. I mean, he's a very unintelligent man. And he's questioned at one point by someone if he knows what love is. He said, they say, Forrest, you don't know, even know what love is when he says that he loves this woman. And he says, point blankly, I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is. Whereas contrarily, I fancy myself a relatively intelligent person. But the last few months has made me question if I have a clue what love is. And so all these things are starting to swirl, and, and I start, like, you know, losing focus and clarity in my thought. And, my, and, and, and it starts to feel like what Ruth Haley Barton describes as this own experience that she had to this invitation before God. Where she said she was, she was doing seminary, and she was working on different ministries, and she was a mother of three small children. And she was, had all this busyness and rhythm, but she herself also starts to lose the touch of the tactile presence of God in her life. And... And so she is sitting down with a counselor who looks at her one day and says, you know, you're like a jar of river water that's been shaken up. And you need to sit still long enough to allow all the dirt and the rocks and the sediments to settle to the bottom so that the jar becomes clear again. And so she experiences what she starts to call in her book an invitation to silence and solitude, which I highly recommend for everyone for reading for this practice. 
an invitation of God to, she describes as to nakedly alone step into his presence. We talk about the presence of God all the time in really trivial ways. It's not trivial. And I think the reason that we talk about it in such flippant language, just I want God's presence to invade, I just want it to be here, is because A, a lot of us haven't experienced it, at least not that often, if we're honest. And we don't talk about often what it takes to get there. But the Bible does. And church history has drawn out of the scriptures a historical rhythm called silence and solitude. There are actually two rhythms, but just so many times they find themselves married to each other. And so you see first here where we read in our text, just Jesus comes out of the baptism, the most like a really high moment where the, he comes up and the clouds open up and the spirit descends upon him like a dove and the father's voice says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. And the next moment, Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which is interesting that the spirit is leading him into the wilderness. The spirit is leading him in the wilderness for this end, to be tempted by the devil. And more on that in a second. But right now, all I want you to notice is that this is the very first thing that happens upon this declaration of Jesus' presence. Before he does anything in his ministry, before he heals, before he does miracles, before he does anything, there is a, a call to go off into, the Greek word is the eremos, often translated the wilderness, the solitude, the desolate place, the lonely place. And just to show that this is actually a pattern. Let's flip forward actually to Mark chapter 1, just the book immediately to the right of Matthew. Mark chapter 1, verse 35. And so Mark also tells, you see in the beginning of chapter 1, verse 9, the baptism of Jesus and the temptation of Jesus. He tells the same little bit of the narrative that uh, Matthew does, just in a little bit more condensed format. Um, and then he talks about Jesus beginning his ministry and just going through this day of calling his disciples and cleansing unclean spirits and, and healing many. And uh, there are uh, many scholars believe that this is actually all one day, that Mark is just showing you the actual first day of Jesus's ministry, and it's setting up what he's going to do for all of it. I mean, it's like a marathon of a day. And at the end of it, interesting at 35, says this, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, or the Aramos, and there he prayed. What's interesting is that Jesus, if this is one day, is out for 40 days in the wilderness, comes back for one marathon, we'll give it to him, but then after one day, he's like, you know what, time to pull away again. And if it was one day or not, the the thing to recognize here is that this is a pattern. This is something that Jesus, it wasn't a one-time thing that Jesus did to start things off. This is something that he does regularly. In fact, if you flip ahead again to Mark 6, these are are not all the stories of Jesus stepping out of the the Ramos. These are just a select group to make the point abundantly clear. Mark 6, 31 through 30, uh, yeah, starting at 31. So this is the story right before Jesus feeds the 5,000. In uh, 31, it says this. 
Uh, we'll start in uh, 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place, to the Ramos, and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. It's just good to know that Jesus can, re- like, he can at least resonate with you if you have a job that is so pressing that you often are squeezing lunch out or eating lunch on the go. I mean, he had a job, a time in his life where he couldn't find time to eat because he was so busy. I mean, there's that sense of like, well, he's just in this culture. He's like, you know, it's pre-electric. How busy could he be? Apparently busy enough that he couldn't eat. So, uh, and then, you know, they're going to go through this miracle. The funny thing is they're going to go to try to find silence and solitude in the wilderness, and then 5,000 people follow him out to the wilderness that he just can't find the rest. And so he, he has mercy on them. He, he gives them something to eat. And then skipping ahead to 45, eventually he gets time. He says immediately uh, after that, all those people had been uh, fed and, and were taken away or, uh, or were just fed and that he's able to get away. He says immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side of Bethsaida where he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went on the mountain to pray. Which is interesting, uh, this is a time where like you see Jesus praying through the night and you just think of it like almost like Jesus is like this hyper-spiritual person of like he just doesn't need sleep, he just wants to be in the presence of God. But it's almost like, no, he just like can't find any other time to do it. And there's a lot of us where it's just like, maybe you've heard before about the idea of being invited into God's presence and silence and solitude and you're just like, man, I just, where am I going to get time to do that? But Jesus seems to recognize that this at some certain moments of his life, and, and Jesus loves sleep. If you just read the Gospels, he, he sleeps regularly in the middle of the day. I mean, there's just times where he like is all in on getting your like, you know, eight, nine or however many hours. But there are just times where he just realizes, man, the most important thing for me right now is to forego even physical pressing physical needs and be in God's presence right now, to be alone and in the presence of just prayerfulness and, uh, before God. And then Luke, uh, Luke 5, last one. Another book to the right. Luke 5, verse 15, 861 in the Black Bibles. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That would withdraw in other translations is say that he would often withdraw. Again, that this is just a regular warp and woof of just what it is to be Jesus, what it is to experience him. In fact, so much that like when life gets busier, he recognizes a greater need for it. I mean, a lot of us, it's just, even if you're like regularly trying to be like, I don't know, reading your Bible or praying or doing something in God's presence uh, on a semi-regular basis, there's always there's those seasons where like, you just got to work 16 hour days. I mean, or you just have to like, you know, put in on both sides, get up early, go home late. And there's just this sense of like, it always what gets squeezed out is being in God's presence. And Jesus, seems to just like find that, man, when life gets more busy, when more people are pressing, more people are hearing, more people are saying, hey, we need you to heal. We need you to perform miracles. We need you to bring life to us, that he sees more need to get away. In fact, regularly, just people are coming before Jesus and crowds are coming before him. And instead of healing them, he goes to be in the presence of God. I mean, he's 
the only one who can heal like he can. I mean, people realize that, and, and there's always this sense in ministry of like, man, there's one more person to be caring for. There's one more person to heal. There's one more person to just, there, there's always one more thing to do. But Jesus doesn't seem to be overly burdened, at least not to the point where he neglects what is most pressing for his soul, to be in God's presence. And, and all of this, again, there's this repeated word of Aramos, the wilderness, the desolate place, the lonely place. And interestingly, through scripture, it is just cover to cover, packed with God meeting people in the Aramos. I mean, Jesus here multiple times in a solitude, a quiet solitude. And, and then Israel, the people of God. When God first says, hey, I want you to come out of slavery, come out of Egypt, and I want you to come worship me. And he says, I call you out to the wilderness. Now, that wasn't him just calling them out on a retreat where they could see the stars a little bit brighter away from the city lights. The wilderness to them screamed of danger. The wilderness to them was where, of course, they depict Jesus meeting Satan because that's where Satan hangs out. That all chaos, all fear, all, all sense of uncontrollability to them was in two ideas, the wilderness and the ocean. And so when they're called out to the wilderness. It's not like this sense of like, oh, of course that's where God is. It'd be like, no, I want you to come to where everybody in culture says is the most dangerous, the most suicide mission, and I want you to come meet me there. And in Elijah, if you know the story, the prophet of Elijah, which actually we're going to get into in detail next week, of him having this huge like, cataclysmic moment where he just takes down all these prophets with these wonderful signs of God, and then he's wanted to be killed by the rulers that he took down all the prophets uh, and and he has to run out into the wilderness and he's there and he's alone and then he experiences God. I mean, there's like these fires and hurricanes, all these things going by and then he experiences a still small voice in the wilderness. And my favorite probably is Hosea. Hosea is a prophet who's told to marry a prostitute and to take this woman who is going to continually be unfaithful to him, continuing to run back to her prostitution. And God says, hey, I want all of Israel to know that you're like that to me. But he says of the woman, the, the woman that he takes that's going to run and sell herself into to prostitution, in fact, sell herself so much that, that, that the men at one point who are used her basically give her back because it's like she has no value anymore. She's been used so much. And God says of that woman, Gomer, he says, hey, I will call her to the wilderness and there I will speak sweetly and softly to her. There's just this regular call of where we meet God is the desolate place. And so, just a working definition of a practice that we want to put before you that is very much so a Sabbath rhythm. In fact, maybe is the ultimate Sabbath rhythm of silence and solitude is this. Intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. This is not in my own invention. This is, or invention. This is from a church, Bridgetown, who also preached in the, uh, on this concept, and I thought this was really helpful. An intentional time in the quiet to be alone with ourselves and God. And so just kind of to briefly define for us, both silence and solitude, and, and just putting them together really quick, just, just silence. So um, there is a spiritual practice that simply consists of just 
achieving exterior silence, just getting away from noise. And that in itself is a spiritual discipline, is a, a beneficial thing for the soul. And it's because there's just so much noise in our culture. Regularly in Lent, I find for myself what's even maybe more impactful than a food fast for me is sometimes an audio fast. I'm just taking all audio out of my life, all drives, all runs, all times I'm sitting, all washing dishes, just sitting there, not podcasting, not listening to music, not, not experiencing something, just being silent. I find every year that I do that, I am starving for silence. It's something I never want, but the second I put it in, it's just like, oh my goodness, this is much more warm than I thought it would be. It's, it's getting away from words. We live in a culture of just filling every space with words. I mean, that's true if it's just articles or podcasts or social media and Twitter and just conversations where you're sitting with someone and you just don't want there to be a gap. And so you just try to keep filling it with questions or ideas or just more and more words. I mean, have you ever been in that conversation where you're both talking and you're both not even really talking to each other, almost just at each other. You're just like both trying to come up with topics to just keep the ball of momentum moving conversationally. So it's, it's achieving silence from the exterior noise, from words, um, even from the, from the internal words of prayer. Ultimately, silence and solitude can be prayer, but often it's not prayer, not at least how we conceptualize it in the West. It's interesting. If you look in the West, we consider prayer talking to God, us talking to God. Whereas in the East, and often just even throughout the Bible, they show prayer as getting silent before God. That regularly the prophets, and when they want to pray, they say that prayer for them is to go to the edge of the city and get quiet and silent. Or, or, or to find a desolate place and to be silent in God's presence. This actually is not this sense of, of Praying, and, and often sometimes praying in a way that we do, like talking at God, a very good thing, a very healthy rhythm, a very good thing that we are good at, at the West, but we're just not good at the other side. And sometimes when we always are trying to fill our time with God with words, it's like we're trying to control the agenda rather than just to be still. Be still and know that he is God. And so it's, it's getting away from all that. And, and, and it begs the question in our culture, why all the noise? Why is the TV always on in the background? If the TV's not in the background, there's music on in the background. If there's not music in the background, uh, like playing over the speakers, it's in our headphones. If, it's, uh, if you're on a run, it, it's, it's a podcast. If you're in a commute, it's an audiobook. It's just constantly filled with noise. Why constantly the noise? It's because there's an exterior silence, but there's also interior silence to be achieved. It is that that swirling of river water where all the settlement, all the sediment, all the mud, all the rocks, everything is swirling and the water is not clear within ourselves. It's the forever empty. It's the mental clutter. It's the, the daydreaming or the bitterness. It's the worry. It's the what ifs. It's trying to sense all of that. Silence and solitude, ultimately, it's, 
It's not prayer, at least not prayer in a way of talking towards God often. It's also not scripture meditation. Sometimes that's what we think of it as like, I just need to find a time to meditate on a scripture. And actually even that, many people who practice this would say, no, that, that even is a bit more active than what it's meant to be. It's rather just trying again to sit still, to silence what one author calls the mind, which is a roving hawk just never finding a place to land, always circling. I mean, have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to just stop thinking, to turn off your mind? We consider it an impossible task, probably because we live in a more intellectual, more word-driven, more always-on-the-go, always-mind-work kind of culture. It's actually not impossible. It feels that way. Like the roving hawk, just never settling, never resting. Just uh, the more you try to like get your mind to stop, the more it freaks out and flies higher with more random thoughts. I actually like the better image of a swimming shark because sharks never can stop swimming. Like if they stop swimming, they stop breathing. I mean, that's how they breathe is by moving forward. They pass water through their gills and then they're able to breathe. And so even when they sleep, they're constantly swimming. That feels like my mind. And so that's silence, the goal of trying to silence all of that, external, internal, words, everything, just be. And then there's solitude. And this is more than just being alone. And you know that because most of us probably have felt the amazing phenomenon of feeling lonely in a crowded room. Like you can be in a packed room. You can even be in a packed room with many relationships that you have, but yet feel completely alone. And simultaneously, this experience, people in church history and the Bible show that there is a way to actually feel amazingly fulfilled while being completely alone. Richard Foster, who writes Celebration of Disciplines, a a go-to text on many of these disciplines, says that loneliness is inner emptiness, solitude is inner fulfillment. It's different. Or Wayne Cordiero writes a book on burnout, and he says this, there's a difference between isolation and solitude. They may contain similar characteristics, but in reality, they are worlds apart. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Again, I feel like that's helpful. Solitude is a chosen separation for refining your soul. Isolation is what you crave when you neglect the first. Some symptoms um, that you're in need of solitude is that you just become distant from yourself. You start to just lose track of just even what's going on in the bottom of you. I mean, again, it's that murky swirling up of water and you just can't quite see clearly through the water. Um, You find yourself regularly slaved to the tyranny of the urgent. You're always working, always doing, but never really seeming to get the important things done. Always working off of the like important and urgent or the non-important and urgent, but never working on the important, not urgent list. In fact, that's often where the most important things reside. Uh, You find yourself running to escape rather than engaging God. Again, just how can I experience more of the celebration of God's good things? How can I just escape more and more? But yet you're doing these things that never really rest your soul and, and you never actually get to the things that really give deep rest to your soul but there's just something about you're too exhausted to enter into those, so you just go for the cheap escape. 
You fall easy prey to temptation. We talked about last week. I mean, when you're tired is when you are most susceptible to temptation. And that's just true in everything. Why would it not be true of a deep existential soul tiredness? And then you lose sight of your identity and calling from God. And you feel distant from God. You feel distant from his presence. You feel distant of what it would ever be to hear his voice. Verses like, my sheep know me and they know my voice, feel like condemnations. Because you just think, I, I, I don't know. I can't catch his voice in the midst of all the swirl and the clutter right now. If I hear anything, I just have every suspicion that that's just my wishful thinking. You start living off of other people's spirituality, of podcasts, of books, of your community, of people around you. I found this true in the last seven months. I just found myself really struggling to pray, and I found I had to pray with other people. And I actually had to do it. I just, like, I just found, like, man, I just can't be alone in this season because I just wasn't ready to accept the invitation. And so I just regularly just had to pray with my wife, with my community, with other people. I was just like, I need other people to ground me, to live off of their spirituality, which might be okay for a season, but eventually it will run out. So eventually the invitation is to solitude, which is to getting first alone with ourselves. It's getting away from others, from the tyranny of the approval or disapproval from everyone else from the pressures of the world. It's the ultimate ceasing. Ceasing from all work, doing nothing but being alone in God's presence. And in that time, it's a decompression. Again, this is a helpful, just from the teaching of Bridgetown, of just like saying what exactly happens in the moment. It's decompression from noise, traffic, chaos, busyness, activity, from nonstop stimulation. And then it's a slowing down. You slow down long enough to feel emotions that you've been running from and finally are like desperately trying to catch up to you or maybe some situations. And you face the good, the bad, the ugly in your own heart, which means that sometimes you face that desire and that hunger for God or that lack of desire, that lack of hunger. You face addictions that you've been using to get you through the weeks or the months or the years. You face that need to continually be productive and what happens when you turn that off. You face all those random thoughts that are somewhere below consciousness. You face the sin patterns in your life. But you face them in a safe place before God. Not standing in condemnation, but standing in a place where he says, hey, no, come to me in that moment. Face yourself in my presence, in my loving, accepting presence. It's a place where we begin to hear God's voice, begin to cut through all the other voices, all the social media, all the cultural commentators, all of the pressures of your work, your superior, your parents, your children, all of that. And it's a place where we start to find a new place of freedom. Freedom from failures and successes. Freedom from the approval of others. 
and we come home to ourselves. And so solitude is first coming home to self, and then it's also and ultimately coming home to God. Getting alone with God, which is interesting. Like, you just recognize instinctively that being alone with someone is, like, fundamental for all relationship. I mean, if I spend my whole life not being alone with my wife, I mean, I can be with her and be with other people, but if we just never get alone, I mean, I experience that every single time we take a vacation or a holiday, you know, with a, a, a holiday with family, I just really long for the car ride home once our kids have fallen asleep. And that time where we just sit there and reconnect and catch up of what maybe a thousand thoughts that we'd had through that last week or however long it was, but just couldn't really fully express to each other because we were never alone. Or it's the same with friends. I mean, there's sometimes where you just have that friend where like, I just need to be with them. I need to know what they think. I need to express this fully to them. I just need to be fully alone with them. And God is no different. But you say, well, um, I beg to differ, Kent, um, because uh, I can't touch, hear, feel God. Because, I mean, yeah, there's even sometimes where, like, I need to be in the presence of my wife or a friend, and I don't even need to talk with them. I just need to sit with them. I mean, there's, like, like seasons, anyway, I've done a season of, like, long-distance relationship, know that sometimes it's not enough to FaceTime. Like, that's great, but it's not enough to actually just be there and talk. Sometimes I'm done with talking. I just want to be in their presence and just sit there. But I can't feel God. I can't hear God. I can't see God. And ultimately, I would say, well, that's partially because we've gotten so swirled up, we can't experience those things. But just because, but yes, I mean, many of us are not going to then in that moment hear an audible voice or feel a tactile touching hand. But yeah, C.S. Lewis talks about in one of his writings that like, he says like, after we die in this in veneer, what we call reality falls away and we stand before the greater reality of God, we realize that that was actually more real the whole time. Like, God's lack of a physical, tangible, tactile, audible presence in my life doesn't make him less real. I mean, Jesus says, hey, it's good that I go away because I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will be within you, who will be in, I mean, another author talks about that God puts himself in creation. Everything that is made, the goodness of that, he's there. But even more than that, he says, in the Bible it says that he puts us into the hearts of all humanity. That Paul talks about that. He says there's something deep within all of people that just says, I know that God is there. That he's present within all of humanity. And then yet even deeper still, he's present to the believer. That he is actually residing within you. And so it it seems to make sense that maybe all we need to do is silence everything that is distracting us from the still, small voice that is very real and is waiting to be experienced. Not, and even though it's called a small voice, I don't think the experience at all, though sometimes, is silent or quiet or even just muted. It can be very impactful. It can be rapturous. But ultimately, to experience at least at first is in the quiet, in the stillness. Andrew Sullivan, 
who writes uh, an article called I Used to Be a Human, talking about it, an experience of checking in his tech devices for an extended period of time just to try to regain humanity, regain his sense of, of presence in the world, writes this. He says, modernity slowly weakened spirit, spirituality by design and accident. In favor of commerce, it downplayed silence and mere being in favor of noise and constant action. The reason we live in a culture increasingly without faith is not because science has somehow disproved the unprovable, but because the white noise of secularism has removed the very stillness in which it might endure or be reborn. If churches came to understand that the greatest threat to faith today is not hedonism, but distraction, perhaps they might begin to appeal anew to a frazzled digital generation. What he's saying is that it's not this thinking, rational mindset that has finally said, oh, we've just figured out a way that the world works without God. In fact, I'd say the more we pressed in that question, the more we realized, man, this doesn't work without something starting this whole thing off. He's saying rather there is a distraction, which is our greatest enemy, that constantly keeps us from connecting and being in the presence of God. In fact, that's why so many, I mean, there's so many church fathers and mothers throughout history that have said of all the spiritual practices, though they try to discount none, possibly the most important is this one. Henry Nouwen says that if we don't make space to be with God and listen to him, we do not take spiritual life seriously. And Mother Teresa, speaking to Henry Nouwen, he asked her one time, just what, is, what do I need to do to, to continue to grow in my spiritual life and growth and walk? And she says two things, spend an hour with Jesus every day and do nothing that you know is wrong. That was it. Mother Teresa to Henry Nouwen, two of the gr- spiritual greats, if you're tracking along with the f- trading cards of the last uh, couple hundred years. And they are simply saying, exchanging between each other, be an hour with Jesus a day, and do nothing that you know is wrong. And I just want to awaken our imaginations to like, can you imagine what it would be like to be in God's presence? To really be there. Dallas Willard, he writes about that idea and he says this, to be in solitude is to choose to do nothing. For extensive periods of time, all accomplishment is given up. Silence is required to complete solitude. For until we enter quietness, the world still lays hold of us. When we go into solitude and silence, we stop making demands on God. It is enough that God is God and we are his. We learn to have a soul. We learn we have a soul. That God is here. And that this world is my father's world. So really quick, practicals. I'm going to get more into these next week. But just to kind of like say, like, what are we talking about? Science, solitude, very ethereal. Give me, like, tangible, like, what are we talking about? There's a number of ways that this is practiced. But first and foremost, I think it's practiced on a daily small level. And that means just, like, taking time to find what many people say, like, finding a sacred place. Just a place where you go to regularly. You usually say, like, not your office, if you could all help it. But if that's the only place you can find to be alone, maybe you do use your office. If you're a mom with children, you're like, I don't have an office, like, you know, like, and I'm always surrounded. I mean, I one time just found I had to come home every day, and before I entered the house, I went into the car in my garage and just found that to be a sacred place. It was silent. It was still. You can do that at nap time. The monitor stretches that far. But I would say you have to turn off the monitor, too. And, and so being in the silence, being in stillness, finding a sacred place, Finding a comfortable but alert position, which can be different for you or what it is, but maybe just sit, seated 
a place where you're not distracted by discomfort, but also not distracted by the need to try to keep awake. And then finding a modest goal, setting a timer so that you don't have to look at the time. It could start with 10 minutes every other day or two minutes to just sit in the stillness. In that you need to like be aware of like your stage of life. Henry Nowen was single and kind of like monastic in his lifestyle. If you're a mom of three, four kids, whatever, you know, just, or if you're, you know, just anything like in just like in the beginnings of your career, it's going to look different. But I would say, don't write it off. Find something, find something. Maybe even if it's a minute retreat, a few minute retreats that your phone buzzes you at some point in the day and says, hey, just take a minute right now. On your commute, times where you find normal, regular delays. And then it's just finding a prayer that really, again, might be, it's probably words because we are such just a wordy culture, but it's not even meant to be about the words. It's merely just finding a prayer that voices the desire of your heart. I've heard some people say they started with just a, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. And just a reminder of the presence. For me, often, it's just the breathing in and out of be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I'm God. Not more than six to eight syllables so that it can be even patterned along with breathing. And it's learning to try to like silence all that distraction because in the beginning stages, you just find the roving hawk, the swimming shark just going crazy. And not judging it, not condemning yourself, not mentally, metaphysically, or metaphorically snapping yourself with a rubber band, just saying, that's fine, and letting it float away and continuing back to that phrase. That phrase can be scripture, it can be anything. And over time, you learn to build focus. And then most importantly, you just need to resist judgment. At the end of the time, when the timer buzzes, even if 90% of it you just were having a daydream about flying, it's just recognizing that today was exactly what today needed to be. And I practice this over the long run. It's not this sense of like, oh, I'm going to nail it. It's having a mental attitude of practice, a fascination. Maybe I'll be naturally good at this. Maybe I'll be horrible. Maybe I'll love it. Maybe I'll hate it. I, f- I would argue that many of us at the beginning will hate it. But that's not, in, in m- most of exercise and growing and physical strength, with what makes you feel the worst is not just to say, well, you don't really need that. It's that you need that the most. That this is a particular area of weakness for our culture, for our time. And it's going to hurt like a muscle that has not been used for a long time. It can be active walking, but I think you need to be aware of that. Oftentimes, I want to walk just because I want a constant change of scenery so it can continue to distract me. Sometimes it's helpful to connect to nature. Sometimes it's not. You need to be honest with yourself. And then it can be extended times of taking day retreats, taking overnights to be nothing but a copy of of your Bible and in the silence and solitude of God. I know a lot of us just, like, that sounds crazy. And there's this push-pull desire, and I'll end with this. A push-pull desire in our lives of, to this idea. There's something about us that like, kind of like draws us in. Like I talk about it, I talk about it to myself. I'm like, man, there's something about that that I really want. 
But at the same time, there's this push away of just like, man, I just need to distract myself. I just need to not go there. I need to be with people. I just need other things to keep going. Because honestly, we're just, we have all these fears. And this awakens so much fear in me and so much fear in you, I'm guessing. What if I can't do it? What if I'm uniquely just un- incapable? What if it never silences? What if months and months have go by and I've made no traction? What if God doesn't show? What if he does show and he's unsatisfying? What if he does show, he is satisfying, but we realize we have no relationship whatsoever? What if all these things continue to just keep me at arm's length from God's presence? But I would say it's important, this is another practical, to pay attention to your fears. In fact, it's often a good time if you're experiencing them right before or maybe right after, writing them down, getting them out of your head. This is what I'm afraid of. Because pay attention to fear, because on the opposite side of fear, it's a coin. If you turn fear over, it's desire. Desire and fear are intrinsically linked. In fact, we fear desire. And we have fear because we have desires and we are afraid that either the desire will control us, it'll take over us, or, or, or it will be unmet. heard a haunting phrase yesterday when I was talking with someone about just, they were talking about a, a common acquaintance of ours and they said, she's just so afraid to hope because she knows what it's like to be disappointed. But that fear points to the fact that this is your deepest desire. Your deepest desire, the desire under everything in your life, is to be in the presence of God, to experience full satisfaction in the presence of God. That's why I found myself running from him, why I found myself running through spiritual practices on my Sabbath, is because I was just afraid he couldn't satisfy me. I was afraid he'd show up or he wouldn't show up or he just would be unsatisfying. But it just kept pointing to the fact like, no, I somewhere know that he is the only way to be satisfied and I'm just afraid I can't get there. And it's also underneath your deepest desire, which is to be in his presence. Underneath even that is his desire to be in yours. His desire for you. That the Bible is a story of a God who is consistently, ruthlessly, unstoppingly pursuing after us. And the cross stands as legitimate evidence that he will stop at no thing to achieve our presence, to invite us in, to smooth the road, to meet him in the forever empty, the wilderness, the Eremos. Maybe in just a small way, you meet him right now in communion. The end of each sermon, the high point of our service, is an invitation to come, to, to reflect, to be not in solitude, but at least in silence. And not in full silence, the buzzing of lights, maybe the playing of a song or just the shuffling of people prevent it from being fully silent. But still, just to be silent and to be present to God and then to come forward and to be reminded of his presence, which is everywhere, but in this case is 
especially, especially in these two elements of bread representing his body broken so that you might enter into his presence without condemnation, without shame. And the cup representing his blood shed so that you might be fully clean in his presence with all your distraction, with all your addiction, with all your sin. That it cleanses you as you walk into presence with him. Stations around the room, front, uh, my left, your right, gluten-free, my right, your left, and in the back. Let's pray. Father God, I pray, Lord, just for right now, even though we can't achieve perfect silence in this moment, that you might give us an interior silence and just allow us to commune with you. Allow us to be present to you. Allow us, Lord, to accept the invitation to experience you in the desolate, forever empty, but life-giving wilderness. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.